Amen. We're in week three now of our series called But God for the summer, where each week we're looking at a different aspect of, of God, of, of where we ex- people in the, in the scriptures have experienced pain or turmoil or suffering or abuse, and, and, and seeing how there is a, a but God moment, those two powerful words, no matter what it is, and it says, but God, and God enters into those circumstances, into that pain, into that difficulty, and turns it around, whether it be a miraculous one-second turnaround or whether it be an ongoing process. And last week, we looked at how God is present in the midst of our dysfunctions, and this week, the title of the sermon is, When People Harm Us, But God. We're looking at how God is present even in the midst of abuse and harm and things like that. And last week, Lisa Fallon bravely shared a bit of her story of dealing with that, and this week, I've asked for Tony Morgan to come and do our reading for us as well as give a brief testimony as well of his own but God story. So Tony, thank you. <laughs> a little pitter-patter of applause. <laughs> All righty. So let's see, here we got the copy right in front. Oh, they made it nice big print too. Look at that. That's good because it'd be hard to read if it wasn't. But now that their father was dead, I'm sorry, we're reading Genesis 50, 15 through 20. But now that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers became fearful. Now Joseph will show his anger and pay us back for all the wrong we did to him, they said. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before your father died, he instructed us to say to you, please forgive your brothers for the great wrong they did to you, for their sin is treating you, for their sin of treating you so cruelly. So we, the servants of the God of your father, beg you to forgive our sin. When Joseph received the message, he broke down and wept. And then his brothers came and threw themselves down before Joseph. Look, we are your slaves, they said. But Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. So, for those of you who don't know, my name is Tony Morgan. My family started coming to this church about 12 years ago, right after we had moved in to this building. And um, honestly, I'll tell you this, I have not seen a church make a transition between leadership like this ever. And you might say, well, how do you know? Well, let me tell you. I was blessed to be born into a Christian family, and not just any Christian family. On both sides of my family, we had pastors going back to the early 1900s. In fact, there was even people in the Salvation Army. We have a rumor that one of my relatives invented the ringing bell outside of place because he didn't want to be cold. Not provable, but that's what they told me. Unfortunately, in my situation, my dad was, or not unfortunately, he was a pastor, but my dad was a pastor. My mom played the piano and the organ in church, so we had the whole thing going on. And unfortunately, he passed away when I was eight. <clears throat> so I grew up with this need for male approval and for trying to find a role model. And in my life, I couldn't find just one person who I felt could fill my dad's shoes. So I chose character attributes of five different men. One of those men happened to be my youth pastor in high school. I thought he was great. He had leadership. He seemed to love Jesus. He made things fun while still having rules. And I thought this guy was awesome. So I made him one of my role models. As I got older, I realized I wanted to go into youth ministry. I felt like God was calling me to go into youth ministry to help other people like myself or that were just hurting and needed to know Jesus. And it so happens that this youth pastor had become a senior pastor. And he got a hold of me and invited me to come up and be an apprentice at the church he was at. So I went up there, and that was all great and dandy. And I saw some things that 
at my young age, didn't really know what was going on. But if I had seen it now, I would be more aware that there was some sideways stuff happening. That apprenticeship led to me getting to go to Grand Coulee and being a youth pastor for four years. And let me tell you, if you're a single guy in a small town with a limited pool of people, you get set up a lot, or they try to. It became so bad at some points, I would go to Sunday dinner for someone's house after church, and I would be surprised if a single girl didn't just happen to come out of the kitchen. So it was kind of interesting. When that, uh, and I even had pastors that wanted me to missionary date, and for those of you who don't, don't know what missionary dating is, missionary dating is when they try to get you to date someone who's not a Christian because they figure by dating you, they'll become a Christian. It's not a good way to date. So after about four years, I decided I felt led to go back home. I was going to finish my uh, ministry degree. But when I got home, that former youth pastor, who is now a senior pastor, called me up and wanted me to come be his youth pastor because his other youth pastor had left. When I got there, one of the people in the church pulled me aside and said, I'm not going to tell you what's going on, but just keep your cards close to your vest. That's kind of unnerving, just a little bit. So I was only there for a few years, and in the course of that time, I started to see some strange things. The church seemed to cycle through staff, and they would be there one day and gone the next. And it was always for a good reason. They had to leave, something went on, or they got blamed for some weird sin or something, and they went away. But then it was my turn, and it started with accusations. I came back from visiting my mom down here in the, in the Edmonds area, and I got back up there, and it had snowed, and so I got stuck. And I got accused because the reason I didn't come back was I had gotten in a fight and had gotten taken to jail. And you can check my record. I've never been to jail. I've not been in the back of a police car. All right. So then there was other accusations, and things went on. One day I was going to go to the, to the high school, because I usually went there for lunch on Wednesdays to hang out with the kids and kind of visit before we had youth group on Wednesday nights. That's what we did back then. And as I walked out, the pastor's wife and the new associate, new associate, pastor, were getting into her vehicle and invited me to ride along with them. I wish I hadn't. As I walked over, it was a new vehicle to them, and I commented how nice it was. And then I said a joke that the pastor had shared with me because he told me that people always assume pastors work one day a week and get paid for seven. And they're these high-paid pastors, right? So as I got in the vehicle, I said, man, this is a really nice vehicle. Ah, but you know how it is with those high-paid pastors. She got very offended. She got really upset. I apologized. I tried to explain to her where this came from. And it seemed like it was fine. We went to the school. We came back. No big deal. Then the next day was my day off, and I came back Friday morning to the office, and I looked in my inbox, and I don't mean on the computer, because we didn't have those at the time. Not like that. And there was a letter in my box. And I opened up the letter. And there was these two pages of yellow notebook paper. And it basically, in a nutshell, said, we're, letting, we're firing you because of verbal disloyalty. And you're, you're done. We're going to give you three months of pay. You can stick it out for a while. But only if you keep it quiet. So. I was kind of disturbed with this, and I just felt like God was telling me to leave right away. And over time, find my spot here. 
over time, uh, he also said that he would give me a good recommendation if I went quietly, that he would help me to find another position, that whole deal. So I left. Felt really hurt over the whole thing. I tried to talk to him. He wouldn't listen. He just was done with me, and that was it. And it was just like everybody else who had cycled through. I had gone to other churches and applied to be a youth pastor there. And lo and behold, I either got one of two answers, no or nothing. They wouldn't even get back to me. And I realized that he had not given me that good recommendation he promised, and I was getting the exact opposite. And it made me very bitter and angry. I was very upset. And I actually, I'll tell you the honest truth, I went sideways for a while. I knew that God was God, but I had had it with churches. I grew up in a church. My dad, when he passed away, I saw how the church fell apart because people started infighting. And so now I'm stuck in a situation where who, this guy who I had based part of my life on, on how I wanted to be a character of a good man, turned out to be the complete opposite. And I had this letter, and it was these two yellow pages, like I said, and I kept it. I should have thrown it away. I should have crumpled it up, put it in the garbage immediately. But I kept it because it justified how I had been wronged. And every so often, I would pull that letter out of that place. I kept it in this briefcase, and I would reread it, and I would get angry and hurt all over again. And as time went by, I got married to this beautiful woman who you all met. I have an awesome daughter. God has done wonderful things in my life. But I kept coming across that letter. And I would reread it, and I'd get hurt again. And so finally, one day I was at work, and I had forgotten about the letter. I hadn't seen it in a few years. And I reached into this briefcase that I hadn't used in a while, and I pulled out that envelope. And I opened it up, and there was the letter. And I felt like God was saying, throw that in the garbage. Get rid of it. And so I put it back in the envelope, and I put it in the garbage, and I'm fighting myself the whole way. And I'm like, okay, it's done, no problem. And I left the office that day, and I went home. And all night long, I thought about that letter. I thought about that justification for my hurt. So what I, I did is I thought, I'm going to go back in the morning. I'll get it out of the garbage. I'll put it in there. No one has to know. I'll still have that letter. I'll still have my justification. And when I got back to work the next morning, God had miraculous, miraculously emptied my garbage can. And you say, there's no miracle in getting a garbage can emptied. At my office, there was. <laughs> we were responsible for our own garbage. And it just so happened that someone came in that night and emptied our garbages. And I'll tell you honestly, I was disappointed when I saw that empty garbage can because I thought I was going to get back my justification. But God had a different plan. He was tired of me being pulled back into that. And so over time, I started to feel relief that that was gone. I wasn't constantly pulled back into it. I wasn't constantly being reminded and being able to justify why I had been hurt because God had a different plan. Thank you, Tony, for sharing. It's such a joy that you've been able to join us here and get to know him a bit. And uh, for those who know, I've only been here about a year and a half, and it's been wonderful to get to know people and hear some of the stories of how God's been moving in people's lives. Um, There's a kind of a universal truth, as we're to see in the passage we're looking at this morning. There's two of them, actually. One is that people are broken and they will harm us. 
That's just a universal truth. People are broken and they will harm us. And the second one we're going to see today is that God is good and he's a God of redemption. And that's where we're going to land as we look at the story in the life of Joseph this morning. And, and, and these true truths just come screaming through that, as through Tony's story as well. That, um, as I jump in, first, a, a little, just a brief warning as I jump in, and that's for those that might need a heads up. This morning, I'm actually going to touch on a, what is a touchy subject. I'm gonna, about halfway through, I'm going to share a bit of a story of, uh, of sexual abuse and the impact of that. And I just want, for those who need to kind of prepare their hearts for that or for impressionable ears, there, there's not going to be anything explicit, but just so you're ready when that comes. But um, Last week, we, we were looking at the background of Jacob and of Joseph. And we saw that, that Joseph last week comes from this incredibly dysfunctional family of Jacob and Abraham and the amount of, of abuse and deceit and lying and all the other stuff that went on in this family. That Jacob was an absolute mess and Joseph was born into this and so he became a deceiver in all the ways just like his dad and pursued a lot of the similar things his dad did. And, and his father had multiple concubines and multiple wives and, and he bought Joseph this and he, he, he favored Joseph and bought them a super fancy coat that he gave him and that made his brothers know that he loved him far more than all the others. And the brothers got really messed up because of this. And they, they really hated Joseph with everything they had. And it was a complete mess. In fact, Genesis 37, four says this, it says, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him. And then he just hated, it poisoned them. They became to hate that actually led to the point of wanting to murder him. And it didn't just poison his brothers. Joseph also was poisoned. As you see at the age of 17, when he gets this coat and he has this favor and he starts getting these dreams that he's going to grow up and people are going to bow down to him, he doesn't handle it well. He's just a 17-year-old kid and he kind of seems like a snot-nosed kid who kind of took it a little personally and he didn't know how to handle the favor of God, the anointing and, and all the rest of this. And so he kind of rubbed it in his brother's faces a bit as well. And the situation just kept getting worse as the favoritism grew until finally his brothers wanted to end his life. And one day his brothers were out in the wilderness and Joseph uh, was, was being sent by his father to go visit them out and he had to walk miles out to find them. Eventually finds when he's a long way in the distance, he's still a long ways off. One of the brothers sees him, says, hey, Joseph's coming. And the response of the brothers is, let's kill him. Let's kill our brother. And so that's what they decide to do. Their hatred had turned to murder, and, and so they decide to kill him. And, and as they're waiting to kill him, they throw him into a deep, dry well as they're waiting to kill him. And then they go have lunch. And as they're having lunch, these Ishmaelites show up, these slave traders show up. And so this whole time, Joseph is thrown into this well, expecting to die. These Israelite slave traders show up, and they decide, it was Judah decides, you know what, rather than just kill him ourselves, let's do something better. Let's sell him, make some money, and that way blood's not on our hands. And so they agree to sell him as a slave, their 17-year-old brother, who came out to help them. Now here's Joseph at 17. Uh, imagine his circumstances. He just watched his brothers, who he thought loved him and cared about him, sell him into slavery. I mean, imagine for a moment how horrific and traumatizing this situation would have been for Joseph. I mean, seriously, don't just, this isn't just Bible story you've heard 30 times. Put yourself in that place. Imagine the 17-year-old kid walking along, you know, just going to see his brothers. Hey, guys, get stripped of his clothes, is stripped naked, is thrown into oil, is screaming, tears flooding his face. What's going on? What's going on? Hearing them talking about killing him and murdering him and saying, this can't be possible. Being left in a well while your brothers go and have lunch. And you're thinking, they're going to kill me. This is a 17-year-old kid who's lost everything in that moment. And then finally, he gets pulled out of the well, and he must be thinking, oh my goodness, this was some sick and twisted joke. Clearly, they're just torturing me for something. And he comes out, and he sees these, or these, these scary slave traders with a trail of slaves shackled together walking in the desert. 
And all of a sudden, the greatest fear is he would realize worse than murder is he's going to be sent away to these slave traders, losing everything that he knows, leaving his father and the wealth and the comfort and his friends and his loved ones. Everything he knows is thrown upside down at that moment as, Jacob is, as Joseph is sold away as a slave. And then he has marched hundreds of miles across the sandy desert to Egypt from northern Israel. Could, could you imagine the situation of Joseph? The trauma, the pain, the, the fear, the, the anger, the, the confusion of what's happening. And Joseph has been a slave for years in the house of Potiphar. And even though you could say he's treated well, but he was a slave. Every day wondering if someone would come for him. Every day wondering what happened to his father and his brothers and his younger brother and, and everything else. And just in fear and, and concern of what's going on. Always wondering, how did this happen? Deeply missing his family. Wondering why he was abandoned. Wondering how people could hate him so much to not just want to kill him, but sell him as a slave. The trauma that would be happening in his life would be on something that I could not understand. And things then started going even well from after that. He became a great leader in the home, but then all of it comes crashing down as Potiphar's wife tra traps him, corners him. And because he refuses to give in to sin, he stands up for doing what's right. He's then thrown in prison. He's falsely accused of raping her. And he loses everything and ends up as a prisoner. And could you imagine this kid as a prisoner, maybe in his mid-20s by this point, He's like, Lord, all I've tried to do is follow you. And my life is just an absolute mess. Now I'm a prisoner in Egypt. I have no family, no friends, no loved ones. Everyone has abandoned me or tried to kill me. And my only attempts to stand up for you have now led to me being back in prison. What is going on? I can imagine prayers like David prayed of why do the righteous suffer and the evil, uh, the evil uh, prosper in so many ways. Long story short, Joseph then becomes through amazing miracles, the, the, the prime minister of Egypt, the second most powerful man, just next to Pharaoh himself. And he gains all this power, and, he, and he's given wisdom to prepare for a famine that's coming up, and he, and he fills the, the, the city filled with grain enough for seven years for the whole region to be able to eat. And Joseph's family are starving at the time, and, and Jacob sends uh, some grain to Egypt, or sorry, Jacob sends his kids to Egypt to get grain. And while there, Joseph recognizes his brothers. And what does Joseph do? No surprise, he deceives them. He follows in his father's footsteps and, and he, he throws his brothers in jail for three days initially, which you can say, oh, that was fun. No, that's not fun. He is not doing this like a gentle ribbing. They thought they were probably going to die in prison in Egypt. And not only that, when he lets them out, it's only because he agrees to hold Simeon, one of his brothers, as a prisoner for the entire time until they bring their younger brother with him. So Simeon's stuck in prison for two years in an Egyptian prison. Well, the rest of his brothers go home to get Benjamin, but they refuse, Jacob refuses to release him. So for two years, his brother is a prisoner while Joseph waits to see if they will send along Benjamin until finally they run out of food and the rest of the family comes to visit bringing Benjamin. And when they come back, Joseph deceives them again. And this time he accuses Benjamin of stealing and says he's going to make Benjamin a slave. You can see Joseph's heart, it's obvious why he's doing the things that he's doing. And again, through an incredible turn of events and all that happens, Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers in that moment. The tears are so loud that the guards outside the palace can hear him screaming and weeping. He invites the whole family to move to Egypt, and Joseph completely forgives his brothers. He invites them not just to move to Egypt, but gives them the best land, treats them like Pharaoh's own family, and gives them the best possible circumstances they could ever imagine. He lavishes them with, with wealth and, and flocks and, and, and animals and everything else they could desire. I mean, desire. It is incredible the way that Joseph pours out not just forgiveness, but blessing upon these brothers who literally tried to murder him and hated him with everything they had. And then his father dies. And when his father dies... They take the father back. They get this whole royal entourage that, that, that takes Jacob back to his homeland. 
And when they come back, the sons are convinced that everything that Joseph has done was for show for his father. And he realizes that his brother's hearts haven't changed at all. Because his brothers come up to him. We see it in Genesis chapter 50. After his father's died, they don't even have the guts to come talk to Joseph themselves. They send a messenger. They say this. But now that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers became fearful. Now Joseph will show his anger and pay us back for all the wrong that we did to him, they said. So they sent this message to Joseph. They sent this. They couldn't even talk to him. Before your father died, he instructed us to say to you, please forgive your brothers for the great wrong they did to you for their sin in treating you so cruelly. So we, the servants of the God of your father, beg you to forgive our sin. They lie through their teeth, through a messenger. The father never said that. This is them lying, making up this story for Joseph, because they believe there's no way that he could actually forgive them and show grace to them the way that he had. It was all a show for their dad. Look at Joseph's response. When Joseph received the message, he broke down and wept so overwhelmed that the hearts of his brothers could not be changed. For years, he's been pouring blessing upon them, and it will not change their hearts. These guys who have abused him so terribly. And he says, then his brothers came and threw themselves down before Joseph. Look, we are your slaves, they said, fulfilling the very thing, that the, 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 the promise that was given to Joseph years early in the dream. Joseph weeps in pain that they are still so distrustful, refusing to believe that he could have changed. And then he looks at, then look at his incredible response to these murderous, lying, deceiving brothers who hated him, tried to kill him. And look what Joseph does in verse 19. He says, but Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me. And here it is. But God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position to save the lives of many people. He has an incredible perspective. You tried to hurt me, but God intended it for good. You tried to wipe me out, but God was raising me up so I could save the lives of countless people, including yours, my own brothers. And this is not, as the great St. Kelly Clarkson once said, you know, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger, right? This isn't, this isn't about Joseph saying that, like, by, by, by me doing this and me going through this, I'm going to be stronger and I'm going to have a better life and I can stand taller. No, this isn't about him growing. He says, this is not about me at all, he says. The reason why he says this happened is for you, for your salvation, for all these people to be able to live. I have experienced this pain and this abuse so that others may come to salvation. God used this trauma in my life to bring salvation to many people because God is a God of redemption. He will redeem this tragedy, bring life to those who are dying, healing to those who are hurting. I mean, can you believe that? That Joseph would have that kind of of forgiveness and ability to, to reconcile the loss and the pain, the trauma of the past. Decades of abuse and pain and being sold as a slave and the betrayal. And he could see that God would use this to bring healing and salvation to many others. I mean, it's incredible. Can God really redeem that kind of pain and trauma? Now, we're going to come back to this, but I want to take a few minutes and just share a little bit of my own story. Um, when I was about eight years old, an older friend took advantage of me, and, and they, they sexually abused me. And he wasn't an evil kid. He came from a broken home, and... Um, but he robbed me of an innocence that would have massive implications the next 25 years of my life. Um, by the time I was nine, I was completely addicted to pornography, and that was before the internet. I used to go hang out in a neighbor's tree fort with them, looking at their old stacks of their dad's huge stacks of Playboy magazines and watching bootleg VHS tapes in my parents' home basement with them. I was, I was broken by that age, and 
I remember sometimes looking at, so often I look at my own nine-year-old, JJ, and I see his, his innocence, and so often I would just move to tears. I think, man, by his age, I was so twisted and so broken and experienced so much that no nine-year-old should ever have. And I just like, Lord, thank you, Lord. How do I protect this kid's innocence? One of the hardest parts of my own abuse, though, and everyone's got their own story, but of, of my abuse, the thing that, that haunted me so much from the whole process of many of the things was first was the first experience. I'm just going to be honest. It, it brought pleasure as a young kid. It was a desirable experience, and therefore it brought incredible shame, knowing that this thing had happened, but it was something that I didn't run away from. In fact, it's something I participated in eventually, even uh, that, that I could say I initiated future encounters with the boy. And the greater shame, I would say, that lasted for decades was because it was with another boy. Um, for decades, I wrestled with this addiction and the pain and the trauma from this, and of desiring to follow God, but forever feeling just beaten down like this giant weight I could never get off my back. And then it would, it would go away for a little while, then it would just come back with a vengeance, and I, I could never leave it behind. And, and shame just regularly overwhelmed me as a kid, and then even into my adult life. I mean, I can't express with words how much impact this had upon me as an adult and a teenager, and then even as a missionary heading out, and my own identity and my shame, and, 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 and how I related to God, how I related to girls, how I related to others, sexual confusion, addiction. I mean, I, I just couldn't get this weight off my back. It was forever there haunting me all the time. I mean, it's probably the reason I threw myself so hard into being a soldier for Christ as a missionary, trying to just run from all the stuff, to, to value my way, to feel I can earn my way towards God in this process. And I always kept running, and, and, I, and I always felt as long as I kept running, I would never be alone with my thoughts, right? As long as I kept moving and serving God and pursuing Him, I wouldn't have to deal with all this garbage from the past, and I could just keep running and proving my worth and my value to the Lord. As long as I stayed in motion, I felt I'd be doing good. You know, I'll never forget when Sarah and I were married, or getting married, and I was pursuing her, I had to sit her down because I had to let her know, we'd been courting for a while, and I had to let her know before we got married what a mess she was marrying. I'll never forget that time of sitting down and actually telling her about my story, my journey of the brokenness, my past, of the things that had happened, and the things I had done. I remember telling her, I need to give you the chance to walk away, and I remember believing completely that she wouldn't walk, but that she was going to run away from me. And some reason she decided to stay and it's been the greatest decision of my life. The greatest woman who's, who's turned my life around in so many ways. But I, in marriage, I tried to keep the brokenness down. I tried to deal with it. I tried to lock it down. I tried to, uh, to live in such a way that it wouldn't affect my marriage. I'm just being honest with you. And, and as a result, I was never fully available emotionally to my wife because I spent so much energy just turning down these emotions of these things of the past, the pain and the shame. And when my first child, JJ, was born, I wasn't available emotionally to him as well. Because I had just learned how to lock down my emotions. I had gotten so accomplished at turning off my emotions that I remember when I was doing, my, I was doing a master's degree and the, the course at the time was on early childhood development, which is a messed up course to take when you're a new parent. Because they basically teach you every possible way that you're going to screw your kids up. Right? And you basically just, the, the answer is just start saving for therapy now. Right? Because there's, it's kind of hopeless. But at, as I was doing that, I just recognized like, I am going to be a terrible father. Because I have no capacity emotionally to be present to him. And a dear mentor of mine said, James, it's time that I think you need to see someone and, and, and get some counseling. I'm like, ah, maybe, I guess I could do that for JJ. And he's like, no, 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 don't do that for JJ. I'm like, well, I guess, I mean, Sarah, I need to be more present as a husband. I guess I need that for, J- for my wife. And he's like, nope, wrong answer. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, James, you are not healthy. <laughs> you need to do this for you. You need to get healthy. In fact, the best gift you can offer your wife and your family is you getting healthy. So go get healthy. And so I did. And so began the greatest journey of my life. And that was, honestly, 10 years ago. The most powerful day of my life I'll never forget. Maybe I'm oversharing here, and I just hope it connects with someone in some way. But um, 
I often refer to this day 10 years ago as my second birthday. It's the day that I got my humanity back. And it was not an easy day. I remember sitting with my counselor that day as she took me back to that first moment of abuse. I, I could remember it as clear as day, though I had not thought about it for decades. It was an area of my, my brain that was just locked away. And I'll never forget that day as, as, I, as I went back there, and she had me recall that, that, that moment of that first time of abuse. And, and I began putting myself back there, and, and tears were just flooding my face. I mean, snot just pouring out of my nose. I mean, just wailing and heaving as I put myself back in that place for the first time in decades. And I remember she asked me, she said, James, what do you think about that little boy, Jimmy? That was my name back then, Jimmy. And I'll never forget, just, through just tears, snot, just pouring down, my shirt being soaked, screaming out, he's a pervert. He's disgusting. He's sick. He's broken. I remember I was so disgusted with that little kid. I hated myself. I never knew how much I hated myself. I honestly would never tell anyone I hated myself. I never had thoughts that way, but it was all buried. I just was disgusted with myself. And it all just came out of this moment with the counselor, just this fear and this hate and this anger towards that little eight-year-old kid. And all the decisions I had made after that that kind of continued in my brokenness. And I had so much disgust towards that moment. And to make a long story short, this woman, empowered by the Holy Spirit, did the most amazing thing of helping me to recognize that everything I had believed was a lie. My entire life I had lived running from this moment, trying to outrun the pain of the past and what God was actually showing me that right in the midst of that, he was present to me and I didn't have to run from him. In fact, God was not angry at me. He wasn't disgusted with me. And when I looked at the face of God, I didn't have to see resentment or anger, disgust. I saw God with tears streaming down his face with an arms wide open of love better than anything I'd ever seen. I remember looking, uh, that should be just looking back at God and just seeing his tears streaming from his face with arms open wide and realizing finally for the first time in my life, I felt loved for who I was, knowing that this wasn't preventing me from allowing to get to God, but actually God was meeting me right in that space, in the midst of my brokenness, not once I was done with it, but right there in my brokenness. I didn't have to run from him from my brokenness. I could actually take it all to him. And he wasn't disapproving. Father was angry with me, but he grieved with me and just longed for me to be with him. And he would welcome me back with joy and love. And the Holy Spirit just changed my life that day. And not just that day, but the ongoing process. I mean, it was the two hardest years of my life as I spent two years having to walk this really hard journey with therapists of, of, of choosing to engage my emotions and choosing to not compartmentalize and choosing to let my emotions go over the map and yell sometimes and scream sometimes. I didn't know what was going on. But something miraculous started happening. Absolutely miraculous. When I started meeting with, with a therapist regularly, I mean, the first thing I asked them was, they said, what do you want to get out of this? And I said, I, I dreamed that one day I could experience empathy. Because at that point, I was so shut down, I couldn't experience it for others. And I said, that's kind of my goal, is to be able to experience empathy, because I didn't know what it was like. And man, long story short, that journey began so beautifully, as the Lord began to move me in the areas of experiencing empathy and emotional health, and, and learn to be able to engage with others. And, and crazy things started happening. As I started to open up my life to others and listen to others, all of a sudden, I was able to hear from others and learn from others and be able to share with others what they were going through, and be able to, to share in their pain and be able to listen and be able to counsel. And all of a sudden, my ministry started changing just from teaching and preaching and saving the lost, actually pastorally caring for others. And people started coming to me out of the woodwork all the time, starting to come. And as I listened to stories and share, and I started seeing God move in beautiful and, and in profound ways, where prior, the only people I I could ever meet with and mentor were those who had, were like type A dynamic personalities, right? That, were, that wanted to change the world for Christ. Those were the only people I could work with that were just as broken as me pretty much and just want to go save the world without actually knowing Jesus. Because I, I struggled with intimacy with God and with others because that's not the way I was wired. And God began to change all of that. 
And I recognized I actually cared for people and I could minister to people deeply, pastorally, and, 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 and being present to them in their pain. And I slowly started to become aware that all of the pain that I had experienced, all of the abuse that I had gone through, had actually prepared me for an incredible pastoral ministry to serve and to love the way that God had created me to. And it was actually because of what I had walked through that now the Lord was opening up doors to minister that I never thought would be possible. If I had not experienced God working in my life day after day in that way, I have no idea what my life would be like today. My own understanding of God, if I had not experienced that abuse, would be so radically different than it is today. My ability to relate to others, to care for others, to be able to walk with people who've walked in, in, in pain and trauma. In the last 10 years, I've been able to walk with so, so many people. Helping to point them to Jesus and helping them to find healing in the reality of how beautiful our Father is. And I would never say, obviously, that I'm grateful for what happened to me as a kid. The reality is, it messed me up. It screwed me up for a couple decades of my life. They were really, really, really messed up. And to this day, there's all sorts of negative implications from it that still happen. But it was just a few months ago, I was sitting in my office, and I was was just yet another person who was sharing some of their own story of trauma and abuse they were going through. And as they were sharing, and and I was able to help to kind of point them to Christ, and they were just experiencing the love of Christ in such beautiful ways. And all of a sudden, this this emotion overwhelmed me. And that moment, I just realized I had lost count of the number of people that through the work that God had been doing in my life and the healing process of my life, that I had been able to take the love of Jesus and pass along to them. And at that moment, I just said, Lord, I, I don't know how you do this. But thank you, Jesus, that I can be a source of healing. Not that it's about me, but it's him, that I can be a, a vessel of that in some way. And I'm obviously not perfect. I, I, I'm not completely whole by a long shot. I have so much brokenness. And there's so many ways in which the abuse of my past continues to, to impact my life even today. But there's something I can see daily in this, is my own but God testimony of this. Where I can see what Joseph said, and what the enemy meant for evil and for harm, God has meant for good. And I can see that almost every day of the pain of my past and what I've walked through, and not just pain of my past, but all the bad decisions I made as a result of that pain, and how God has redeemed that day after day after day. And now I can say, Lord, you're using it for good. So much good has happened over the last 10 years. And if I were just to stop now, I could say, well, I mean, it's hard to say it's worth it, but Lord, I, I'm thankful that I can be able to do this, but I know there's so much going ahead that people get to know the true healer of Jesus Christ. And if somehow the pain that I've experienced is able to allow that and to create places of safety for those who have walked through abuse or walked through hurt or been under abusive leadership of some kind, that I'm just grateful and say, Lord, please in some way use my experience to be able to bless others and open my heart to that. Tim Keller, he says this, and I love it. He says, regarding this passage of Joseph, he says, the point of the story of Joseph is that God overcomes evil not merely by stopping it, which he does finally, but by thwarting the evil's destructive purposes, that even the devil, or see, even the evil is used to further the saving objectives of God. For if Joseph hadn't been betrayed, the family would not have been saved physically. The family would have killed him, or spiritually, their sins would have killed him. And he goes, that's radical. Here it is. It's saying God doesn't just stop evil. He so completely frustrates it, so completely triumphs over it, that the destructive purposes of every evil act in the end only serve to accomplish the opposite of what they intended. Do you hear that? I love that, that they were intended to destroy, and instead God uses them to bring life. And that's my story, and that's many of your stories, and, and it's the story and process for many of us who are just beginning in that journey. I mean, this passage of Genesis, it's kind of like the Old Testament version of Romans 8.28, which is, you know, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And we hold on to that, but it's even better here in Genesis because you get the context for it. He's saying this is real. 
And I'm not saying that we should be grateful for the garbage of our past and abuse and trauma. It's the goal isn't to be grateful. I, mean, I know that there's many tragedies and abuses where it's impossible to see any good. And I'm not saying you have to try to see the sunny side or put on rose-colored lenses. That's not what God is saying at all. I know there's many situations where people can't get out of bed, let alone consider, how do I save others? I can't even save myself. That's not the point. But what he's saying here, and please hear me if you're in a place of trauma or abuse or pain of some kind, is that you don't need to see trauma or abuse as a good thing. What he's saying here is that God is a God of redemption. And that God, he can use the very trauma, the very evil that caused so much pain, he can flip it and he can actually cause redemption and life for so many others. God is a redemptive God. He is a good God and he redeems even the worst kind of evils. The famous psychologist Jonathan Haidt, he wrote this great book called The Coddling the American Mind. Um, he, He made a hypothetical exercise and he said, imagine that you have a child. And for five minutes, you're given a script of what will be that child's life in the future. And you get an eraser, and you can erase anything you want. And you can take out literally anything you want from the script. And you read that your child, for example, have a learning disability and will struggle to read while others do, and it's going to affect their ability to go through school. You learn that in one of your child's circle of friends, they have these great friends in high school, and yet you learn that one of them is going to die of cancer, and it's going to cause a lot of pain and suffering. You learn that after high school, that one of your kid, when he goes to college, he, he's going to get to the school that he wants, but while there, he's gonna, he says that he'll, he'll, he'll get in a car accident, he'll lose a leg in the process, and go into a deep depression as a result. And a few years later, he'll get a great job, and then he'll lose that job from an economic downturn. And he says, then your child will get married, and then he'll actually go through the grief and the pain of a separation that's very, very painful. Imagine you're given that script for your child's life, and you have five minutes, and you can literally remove anything you want to protect that child from that pain. What would you remove, Jonathan asks. He says, wouldn't you want to take out the stuff that would cause them pain? He says this, he goes, I am part of a generation of adults. Now this this is not a Christian book, it's just a, a secular book. He says, I'm a part of a generation of adults called helicopter parents. Because we're constantly trying to swoop into our kids' educational life, relational life, sports life, to make sure that no one's mistreating them. No one is disappointing them. We want them just to experience one unobstructed success after another. He said, if you could wave a wand, if you could erase every failure, every setback, every suffering and pain, are you sure it would be a good idea? He says, would it cause your child to grow up to be better, stronger, and more generous person? Is it possible, he says, that 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 in some way people actually need adversity, setbacks, maybe even something like trauma, to reach the fullest level of development and growth? The truth is, nothing disciples us like suffering. Right? No Christian self-help book, no small group, nothing will ever disciple us as much as suffering does in creating us and making us more humble and considerate, compassionate, and growing us in empathy and the ability to understand one another. Sometimes the worst thing in the world is a Christian when you're hurting who just offers you a Bible verse without context and just tries to put a band-aid upon it. But the Christian who's gone through suffering, the one who has empathy because they've suffered and they've lost and they know trauma, when they come and sit with you, they're not like Job's friends. Instead, they are like a balm that just, in sitting in that place, they understand what you've walked through. Like Jesus says, that he understood us and was able to walk with us. Joseph shows us that no matter how much trauma that we've walked through, God is with us. And he wants to not just to bring healing into our lives. That's not the chief goal, is not just to bring healing into our lives, but to take the pain and shape us into vessels that can more effectively bring his healing to the world. Right? That's what God wants to do. Not just bring healing to our lives, but bring healing to the world. He's writing our own but God story every day and to see others come to know him. And that's why he often uses the most broken of people to become the best counselors or to become crazy missionaries who become pastors, right? He does all of this because he knows that out of our brokenness is often where those things happen. 
Joseph wasn't saying his life would be easy, but that God would use the suffering and use the pain to bring about beauty. I love how Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says this, God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. Amen. But he goes on, he says, God comforts us in all our troubles. Here it is. So that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort that God has given us. For the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with his comfort through Christ. There it is. God comforts us, not just for us to be comforted, but for us to grow in our capacity to take what he has done in our lives and pour that into the world that others may know Christ and know his healing and life-saving power. God longs for people to do that. And Joseph's example is incredible. I mean, it's amazing what he goes through, considering how horrific the abuse was. But I acknowledge that sometimes uh, Tim Keller says that we can reach the levels with someone like Joseph Tesler where we have like a spiritual nosebleed, meaning it seems that sometimes his example of faithfulness is so high, it's like being in the nosebleeds like back at the kingdom or currently it's used, well, not as high anymore, but at the Safeco Field, you go to the top place, you're up there, it almost feels like the nosebleed seats. It gets so high, it's unrelatable. And, and because the, the graciousness can almost seem unattainable, that how do you relate to a story when it seems so incredible that he can have that much forgiveness and love and pour out on people when, he's, when people are that broken? And maybe you're thinking, you know, I don't think I can be that selfless, or I don't think I can be that forgiving. Because great examples are useful up to a point, and then first they inspire you, like, wow, that's amazing, but then they can kind of start to crush you. Because you realize, I can never do that. And Tim Keller says this, he says, I'm quoting him here, he says, do you know why they inspire you, but they also crush you? He says, because the examples can't actually give you the power to execute. Joseph can't reach down to give you the same power to make you like him. However, there is someone who can. And he is the one to whom Joseph points. Don't just look at Joseph as an example, but look to him as a signpost that's pointing to Jesus. Here's what Joseph was saying to his brothers. He's saying that the cup of suffering that you've given me, or that was given to me, he goes, it's not really your cup that you've given to me. But God gave me this cup so that I could use this suffering and save others. Joseph is saying, you gave me this cup of suffering, but I don't see it as the cup you gave me. I just see it as something that God has allowed me to carry because through this suffering, I am going to save other people. I mean, does that remind you of anybody else? Hopefully Jesus is coming to mind. Because the Bible says that when Jesus was betrayed by Judas, he was betrayed for silver coins. Now, isn't he shocked? Just like Joseph, he was sold literally for 20 silver coins. When Jesus Christ was arrested, he was arrested for something he didn't do anything for. He was like Joseph who was arrested for what he didn't do anything for. When Jesus went into the garden, he talked about the cup of suffering. And, and, and who was mixing this cup of suffering for Jesus? If you were to watch it, you would say, oh, well, it's the, it's the disciples. It was Judas who betrayed him. It was the Pharisees who were doing all this work to destroy him. And the answer is no. Jesus says it wasn't them. He actually says in John, my father gave me this cup. It wasn't them who gave it to me. Because through the suffering, Jesus would save many lives. And because of what Jesus suffered, he was raised to the right hand of power, just like Joseph was raised to the right hand of power. And when Jesus had the right hand of power, what did he do? He forgave those who caused the suffering, just like Joseph did. And Keller says this, he says, if you, if, if you see Joseph, not just as an example, but as a pointer to Christ, and you recognize that Jesus is our Savior, that he has done that for us, and that even though he came to earth, and because of the pain that we caused, he doesn't blame us for what he did, but he actually sees the suffering as a cup that God has given him, and he's happy to do it, and he does that for us, because he suffered so that we can have life today. Jesus took that suffering for us. He suffered unspeakable pain, unspeakable trauma, so that we could live far beyond anything I or you will ever experience. 
And this is what we remember every time we take communion. It's what Joseph was tapping into prophetically before he even knew it about God's heart. And it doesn't mean that trauma and abuse are a good thing, but it means we, we don't have to be grateful for it, but it means that as we hold on to God, God can use it to work in and through our lives. And today we have Jesus with us in the person of the Holy Spirit, also called the counselor. And he is there to empower us to not just deal with the trauma, to not just experience life though we can, but to actually take that very trauma and pain and all of those things and funnel it through the Holy Spirit and experience his love and his life as we pour his love and life into the world. And other people come to experience salvation in him. That is how powerful God is. That is how big his love is and how good our God is. We can have the worship team come up now as we finish, but... There's two major truths that, that to me that, that we started with. The one is that people will harm us, and that is true. It's going to happen. People are broken, and they're going to harm us. And the second one, in God's goodness, he is a God of redemption. And he wants to bring healing into our lives. But he also wants to help us point other people to him. I'm going to say, if you've experienced trauma and pain in your life, and, and you're still wrestling with it, I just want to encourage you that God has seen it all. He agrees with you. He, he knows the pain. He knows the loss. He's been there. He's suffered. He understands everything that we've walked through. And he wants to bring healing into each of our lives, not just to take away the pain, but to redeem the pain. And to presence himself right in the midst of it and empower us to love others the way that he loves us. And I just want to tell you, if you're ever, any of you are in that place or watching online, he's not disgusted with you. God isn't angry with you. He's not disappointed in you. He understands the pain of what you've walked through. He understands what you've seen. He's been there and he grieves with you. And his arms are open wide with a, with a face of joy and love, with tears streaming down, saying, please, just come back to me. I want to take that pain. Help me, help me help you. Just walk towards me. I want to love you the way I created you to experience my love. He's not disgusted. His love for you is greater than you could ever comprehend. He's a safe king. So run to him. Keep fighting the fight and don't give up. And this passage, the whole point of this, of what Paul or Joseph is saying here, is that it's also, it's not just about me and my life. It's not just about how do I get whole, but it's about God is using us in this otherly way to pour into the community around us. And that's what means to be the body of Christ, the baby dedication this morning. It's not just about me, but Lord, how do I use the gifts? Maybe not just, maybe you haven't gone through trauma or pain. But whatever gifts I have, Lord, how do I take what you have poured into me and pour that into people around me? Lord, show me how to point people to you. It could be my business act. It could be my finances and giving. It could be whatever the things are, my nursing skills, my teaching. It could just be the way I know how to sit and listen. Whatever it is, Lord, show me how am I actively using the gifts that you have developed in me to pour in that other people can come to know you. Because it's about other people experiencing life in Christ. This is not a self-centered message, but it's we receive life so we can pour it into others. And lastly, I want to encourage some of you, maybe you do need to seek counseling with a professional. I, I can't imagine had I not been willing to walk that journey. I shared last week about my own father and his journey. It took him a couple decades to start. If I had not started that journey 10 years ago, I don't know where I'd be today. And I thought I was okay. I could have gone through. And the reality is I could have gone through the rest of life. So could my father. And it was the hardest decision was that decision to start that process. And I want to encourage some of you that feel, yeah, I'm okay. Yeah, you are okay. But are you thriving the way that Christ has called you to live? Are you living the life that he actually created you for? And sometimes we need someone else to walk alongside us in that process, who understands how to kind of be a tour guide and walk us down that road to experience more of that life. 
And the last thing I would just say, Jesus brings death to life. If you don't know Jesus today, if you're watching this online and you do not know him, there is no safer place in the world than in the arms of Jesus. Whatever pain you've experienced, whatever loss you've experienced, he understands. And he wants you to experience freedom and life in him.